Somebody, am I on? Okay, I am on. Praise God. Great to see everybody. I apologize for last week. It was an ice bowl that wasn't. Um, I've never seen, never seen the city panic quite, quite like that. Uh, but anyway, it's great to be back and see all of you. We're doing this series of teaching called Making Waves. It's about how to tune in and hear God's voice accurately. Uh, we believe that God wants to speak to you, that He has lots of things to say, and that if we can hear Him, that has the potential to change and impact everything about our lives. And we like the title, Making Waves, because if you can hear God, the effects of that ripple out and affect those around you, those that you love and care about, those in your workplace. And so we're just excited about uh, learning how to hear God more clearly. The Bible says in Mark 9, verse 23, that all things are possible to Him who believes. How many of you believe in Jesus? All things are possible to him that believes. When people hear scriptures like that, what typically happens is we start to think about, well, what that means, I've got to, I've got to figure out how to work up enough faith. I've got to grit my teeth and believe harder, and then that's what will make anything possible. But the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. If you put those two scriptures together, you might say this, anything is possible to those that hear God's voice. Because when I hear God's voice, when I can hear the voice of my Father, and I know that He's a loving God and a good God, and that He cares about my situation, when I can hear His voice on the inside, that naturally gives birth to faith. I naturally believe the voice of my Father. And if I can connect with that voice and hear Him, then all things become possible to me. My three-year-old son um, has very little problem believing his dad. I could tell him that the sky was orange and he might uh, have several questions about it, but if I worked hard enough, I could probably convince him that, that that was the truth. There's a simple childlike response to the voice of our father that just gives birth naturally to faith. And faith isn't something we try to work up. It's just something that happens when you learn the truth about who God is and what He wants to do in your life. Amen. Well, the most basic way to hear God, as we talked about last, uh, well, it was two weeks ago, is simply that you want to apply the Scripture, the, the Word, to your lives. And we talked about, for example, that 1 Thessalonians 4.18 says that being thankful is the will of God. And many people uh, question, what's the will of God for my life? And, and that's a great question, uh, but we tend to think about who should I marry, what job should I have, where should I live, and we're very concerned with all these very specific things, and God wants to help us absolutely answer those questions. But if we would just line up with some of the general instructions that God gives us, like being thankful, we would find that we are in the will of God. And we said that it's, it's possible to be in the specific will of God, meaning doing what you were called to do, what you were created to do, and yet get out of the will of God by not being thankful. For example, I'm in the will of God by pastoring this church, but if I were to become unthankful or ungrateful for the things that God has done for us here, even though I'm in the will of God in the sense that I'm doing what God called me to do, I'm not doing God's will because I'm not being thankful. Does that, that make sense? And, and it's... Pretty simple. We just want to look in here and find principles that apply to our lives. Um, I say it's simple, but we run into several problems when we do that. And we began sort of this rabbit trail, but I, I felt uh, compelled to talk to you about it, that 
uh, we don't always apply the Scripture to ourselves and to those around us in a way that's healthy. And we end up doing damage to ourselves and sometimes to people around us through the way that we interpret Scripture. I know that I personally have, have interpreted Scripture wrongly. Just nobody even taught me anything wrong. I just read the thing wrong, and it brought me into bondage. One of the uh, most awful parts of church history in this country is that um, during, during slavery, there were lots of ministers like me that used this to justify slavery. I don't know if you know that, but it's, it's true. Uh, how many of you recognize that would be a misapplication of, of Scripture? We know now on the, on the backside of history that that was obviously wrong, and yet people used Scripture to justify owning slaves. So just because I read this book and quote verses out of here doesn't necessarily mean that I'm doing something that's life-giving, right? And we've got to be careful the way that we apply this Scripture. Uh, one of the things that you've got to understand about this book is, number one in your notes, is that the Bible progressively reveals God. Progressively. That means that God, throughout human history, has been giving more and more revelation about who He is to humanity. If you follow that line of thinking, which book of the Bible contains the least revelation about who God is? The oldest, which is actually Job. Okay, because Genesis was written by Moses, who, who is, lived far after Job. Job is, most scholars believe, a contemporary or predates Abraham. The oldest book in the Bible, as far as when it was written, is Job. That means, by this reasoning, Job contains the least revelation of who God is. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we don't read Job or we don't care about what it says, but it means that if you go to Job and that's where you start to paint your picture of God, that means that your picture of God is starting from a book that contains the least accurate picture of who He is. Hello. How many, how many people are in bondage to things that happened in the book of Job, which, which did happen? And I'm not denying that Job is Scripture. But what I'm saying is the Old Testament put a veil, we'll read in just a second, over God, and it made it difficult to understand what God is actually like. But when Jesus came, the veil was pulled off, and we saw God clearly for the very first time. One of Jesus' primary purposes was to fully reveal Father God to humanity and make it clear what God is really like. Because up until that point, they had a lot of questions and there was a lot of confusion about what God is like. Let's read this scripture just so that we can see it. 2 Corinthians 3. Let's read verse 12. It says, Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. So I try to talk really plainly. <laughs> because I've got a lot of hope. And not like Moses, who put a veil over his face. Now, if you read the story of, of Moses, after he came down off Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, his face was glowing, it was radiating the glory of God, and it freaked people out. Which, I mean, if my face was glowing, you'd probably freak out too, right? right, right. And, and what Moses did was he put this veil over his face so that people wouldn't be able to see it. But notice that it says, 
so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly to the end of that which is abolished. Now, what he's talking about here is that there was a glory on the law, on the Old Testament covenant between God and humanity. And the thing of the, the interesting thing, though, is that that was a glory that was progressively fading. It was getting weaker. And Moses hid his face, and the people couldn't tell that the glory of God on the law was fading because Moses' face was covered. Amen. Let's, let's read on. What does that mean? Let's read on. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is on their hearts. This is verse 15. Nevertheless, when they shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. What does this mean? It basically means this. The Mosaic law puts a veil over people's hearts that makes it difficult for them to see who God is. Because the Mosaic law caused God to do a bunch of things that contractually obligated God to do a bunch of things that aren't His primary nature. Later in 1 John, which is one of the last books of the Bible, we learn this about God. He is love. It's it's not always clear (laughs) that that's the case if all you do is read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why? Because those books put a veil over the true nature and character of God. But if you turn to Jesus, the veil is taken away. Why? Because Jesus is the full picture of who God is, and He accurately represents God to us. Now, what does that mean? Verse number four. We can learn something from every scripture. I love reading the Old Testament. Um, But not every scripture applies to us or applies to me in the same way that it, it does to the people that it was written to. And the reason is, the reason we haven't understood this is that that many people don't really connect with the idea that God is a God of covenant, meaning He makes these contractual agreements between Himself and humanity, and then He really abides by the contract. When God makes a covenant, He's serious about it. Psalm 89, verse 34 says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone forth out of my lips. When He makes an agreement with humanity, He really, really means it. And a covenant, letter A, is an agreement between two parties. Now, I've got a covenant between me and U.S. Bank. And this this covenant says that I've got to pay this certain amount of money every month. Otherwise, the bank is going to get upset with me and they'll send me a lot of nasty mail. And eventually, what's going to happen, they're going to come and repossess my house if I don't pay this amount of money. At the bottom of this promissory note, this agreement, this contract between me and the bank, there's my signature because I signed that agreement. Molly and I both signed it. We signed like a million. How many of you bought a house? You have to sign like a million pieces of paper, right? Imagine for a moment if you came over to my house and you found that that note that said I owed U.S. Bank however much money, and, and sweat started to just pop out of your, your brow, and you started, fear gripped your heart, and you read that thing, and you thought, oh my gosh, I have not paid any money to U.S. Bank. This, this note is, is due. It's overdue. They're gonna, and you started to think, they're going to they're gonna take my house. They're going to take my car. 
They're going to bring all this judgment against me. Would that be a, a wise way to read that note that has my name and the bank's name? No, obviously that, that is silly. Why? Because you are stressing out about an agreement that I made with the bank. Did you make that agreement? No, I, I made it. So who's responsible for fulfilling it? Me. Now here's what we've got to understand is that the Mosaic law was an agreement that, that the children of Israel made with God. They, they signed this covenant. They put their name on the note. Who then is responsible or was responsible for fulfilling that? The children of Israel. Now, if you go back and read Deuteronomy and you read about all the curses, you read, you read uh, Malachi and you read about the curses that are going to come on you if you don't keep all the law and if you don't tithe and you don't do all the things that the law said that you're to do and you start to stress and panic grips your heart because you feel like all these judgments are going to come upon you. What you're doing is the exact same thing as coming over to my house and stressing out about my banknote. That's, that's what it is. Now, let's just, let's just show you this in the Scripture. Why doesn't the law apply to us in the same way it applied to the nation of Israel? I want to show you something that just blows my mind about the Mosaic law. Turn over to Exodus chapter 19. So after... Moses brings the nation of Israel up out of Egypt. He brings them to the foot of this mountain, and he hasn't given them any commandments or anything. They've been wandering around. They've been whining and complaining and stuff, and God's rebuked them, but no judgments come. There's nothing, nothing negative has happened. The only thing that's happened is they were, they were a little bit hungry, and, and uh, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Anyway, Exodus 19. Now, notice what happens here. We're going to read, what did I say? We're going to read verse 3 through 6. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, This is what you're going to say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. You've seen what I did under the Egyptians and how I brought you on eagles' wings and brought you here to myself. Now, therefore, if you'll obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for the earth is mine. And you will be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you'll speak to the children of Israel. Look at verse 6. You will be unto me a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? It means that God, in His original offer of covenant to the nation of Israel, said, I want to make every single one of you a priest. Why is that significant? Because priests had the ability to personally communicate with God, to have a relationship one-on-one with God. He says, I want that for all of you. If, if you know your Bible a little bit, that language should sound familiar. Turn over to 1 Peter 2. It'll be on the screen. It says, but you are, 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Does that language sound familiar? Who is he talking to here? 
believers, New Testament believers, what are we? We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. How many people in the New Testament are priests? Everybody that believes. In, in the New Covenant, we have this thing called the priesthood of the believer. All that means is that you personally can have a relationship with God. God can talk to you. You don't need me to hear God for you. I'm happy to do that, but I'm not the priest of this house. I'm a pastor. I, I pastor you. I shepherd you. I tell you things from the Scripture. I can hear God. I can prophesy to you. But at the end of the day, you've got a personal responsibility to, and a personal opportunity to have a relationship with God for yourself, which is amazing. Thank God. I don't want to be <laughs> responsible for hearing God for all of you. Moses had, Moses had this terrible burden on himself that he was, he was trying to hear God for everybody. And God comes to the nation of Israel and says, hey, guys, I want to make every single one of you a priest. Now, if you know your Bible history, does that happen? No. Only one tribe can be priests. It's the Levites. And not even all the Levites could be priests. They had to be direct descendants of Aaron. And you had to keep genealogical records, and you had to go back and prove who your dad was and their dad and so forth so that you could be in the priesthood so you could have a relationship with God. What happened? Well, what happens, we won't, I'll summarize it for you, is the nation of Israel says, great, we'll, we'll do this thing. And then God speaks to them, and He talks to them, and He gives them Ten Commandments, and afterwards they're afraid. They've been enslaved for 430 years, and, and they've got this slave mentality, and they, they say, Moses, uh, we know that we just heard God and we didn't die, but we think if we hear God, we will die, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what they said. And so they, they say, Moses, what we want you to do is we want you to go to God and have a relationship with God for us. Hear God for us. We don't want to hear God. It's too scary. You go hear God, and then you bring back a whole bunch of rules. And we'll just keep the rules. That's what we want to do. The Mosaic Law is largely a response to Israel's rejection of personal relationship with God. Letter a there, the law as it existed wasn't God's original plan. That's stunning to me. He said, you can have this, and the nation of Israel says, we don't, we don't want that. We want to substitute a relationship with God for a relationship with rules. That's what they're saying. And, and God, who is good and loving. Here's the thing about a, a covenant. Both parties have to agree. And he said, hey, here's a covenant. It'll be amazing. And they said, no, we're not going to sign our name to that. We want a bunch of rules. What does God do? Well, he obliges. And he says, here's a bunch of rules. And then you read Exodus 24. Let's turn over there. And what happens? God gives them rules, and He says, okay, we'll, we'll do the covenant your way. And they have a bunch of sacrifices. They kill these animals, and they aren't, they aren't trying to appease God's wrath or anything. They're just, they're just, that was the way you made a covenant back then, is you would 
uh, you'd kill an animal and you'd eat it together, and that's, that's how you'd make a covenant. Well, God, you know, is God, so he's not going to eat the animal, but they would, they would kill the animal and then they would sprinkle the, the blood. So notice what it says in verse 6. It says, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the audience of the people. So he said, okay, here's your agreement. And the people said, all that the Lord has said we will do and will be obedient. Famous last words, right? And Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. What is, what is going on here? This is when they signed the contract. They didn't sign it back then in, in ink. They signed it in blood. That blood is not on you. You didn't sign the contract. Your parents didn't sign the contract. What blood's on you? You just drank it. The blood of this sacrifice is not applicable to you. What's applicable to you is the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus enacted an entirely different, an entirely new kind of covenant. So... Why doesn't the law apply to you to the same way that it applies to the nation of Israel? It's because it's not your contract. It's really that simple. Now, why is it then that it's confusing? If it's that simple, (laughs) why is anybody confused about it? And to be honest, we shouldn't be confused about it because huge portions of the New Testament were written about it. The entire book of Galatians, most of the book of Hebrews, Acts 15... All these sorts of things talk about the fact that the law was done away with and that we have a new covenant with God. The reason that there's confusion is because in Romans 11, and this is some kind of intense theological stuff that we won't really cover very well. You can read this later. It talks about how that that God, that, that Israel was like a tree. It was like this family of God. And some branches were broken off and God took you... Gentiles, people that weren't Jewish, and he grafted you into the family of God. He made you part of that family. And the, yeah, thank God. And the, the Jews at the time, they recognized, you can read this in the book of Acts, they saw these Gentile believers, these guys are getting saved. They're now part of the family of God. And they had this question. It was a good question. They're part of the family of God now with us. Does that mean they should be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? a legitimate question. And that's what Acts chapter 15 is about. They had an entire meeting about it. The first apostolic council, all these guys get down together and they, they have a meeting and this is the question. Well, first of all, the question is, do you think Gentiles can get saved? And Peter says, well, you know, I preach the gospel to these Gentiles and they all got filled with the Spirit. So I'm pretty sure they can get saved. And then, and then James quotes some scripture that backs that up. But then they say, well, but what about this whole deal about the law of Moses? Do they have to keep that? And, and Peter says, you know what, guys, that whole law of Moses thing, that didn't work out so well for our ancestors. It was a big weight that they weren't able to carry. Why would we now put that weight on, on these Gentile believers? And they basically come to the conclusion that, in fact, no, the new believers don't have to be um, circumcised and keep the law of Moses Let's read Hebrews 8, which really uh, solidifies this for us. 
We're going to read more scriptures that are on your, your paper there. Hebrews 8, verse 7, it says, For if that first covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, there should have been found no place for the second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days have come when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Okay, we just read about that covenant, right? And he's saying, he's saying, I'm going to make a new one, and it's not going to be like that old one. Is it like the old one? No. no. What was the old one like? The old one was like, do all this stuff, or there will be judgment. Did God want to give them that covenant? No. no. It wasn't even God's idea. But people like religion. People do. People, people, it's, people are afraid of, of really connecting with God on a heart level and, and would rather just do a bunch of rituals and keep rules then relate to God in a real way. I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just, this is, we've got some just natural religious tendencies that exist in the, in the human race. And so back then, people chose rules over relationship. Are people still making that choice today? Sure they are. Now, we're not mad at those people. God, we love them. God loves them. But, but it, we've been offered something better. It says it's not going to be like that covenant. Now, what's, what's this covenant going to be like? Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put, their, put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts, and I'll be to them a God, and they'll be to me a people. What's that mean? He's saying instead of this external regulation where there's a bunch of stuff written down that you've got to keep, I'm going to move those regulations on the inside of their heart. I'm going to change their nature. I'm going to make it to where they want to do good. How many of you actually love Jesus? How many of you actually, actually want to do the right thing? Okay. That means then that the law is not for you. Because you don't need the law. Because the law is there to protect you if you want to do evil. But the Bible says you've been, you have a law written on your heart. That says you've been changed. You've been made a new, a new person. Now... It says, verse 11, They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. What's the difference here? Everybody's going to be a priest. Everybody's going to know Jesus. Everybody, everybody. You don't need to, I don't need to look at you and say, Here's the word of God for you. Now, I can do that, but I don't have to because you're a priest. You can get a word of God for, for you. Now, notice verse 12. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. That's a big difference than the Old Covenant. Was that how it was like in the Old Covenant? No, man. I mean, you were punished for your sins and your iniquities. New Testament, you're forgiven. You're pre-forgiven. You're forgiven before you even do anything wrong. You're forgiven before you were born. Thank God. That's exciting. In that he says, notice this, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decays and gets old is ready to vanish away. That verse there confuses some people because it says the old covenant is ready to vanish away. Why does it say it, doesn't it say it hasn't vanished? This book, most scholars believe, was written in about 65 A.D. 
During this time period, the Jewish temple still existed in Jerusalem. And the Jews were continuing all of the rituals and sacrifices that were prescribed under the law of Moses. They were going on as if Messiah had not come. They were offered this new covenant, but many of them were still operating under the old covenant system. In 70 AD, a man named Titus came to Jerusalem and destroyed it. This leveled that thing. One of the things he did was level the temple. Once the temple was leveled, could they continue doing these, all these rituals and worship and everything Moses said to do? No. In fact, the temple is still destroyed. So when he says it's ready to vanish away, he's saying it's about five years away from vanishing. Here's the picture that God gave me, okay? Imagine when this was written, Paul or whoever wrote this is saying, okay, guys, you've got two options. You've got a brand new car you can drive, or you've got an old, beaten up, rusted out car that'll barely make it down the street. Which one do you want to drive? You ought to drive the brand new car. Okay, however, many people were still choosing to drive the beaten up, rusted down car. They were still going to the temple, doing all this stuff, keeping all the feasts, doing all these, these rituals. Listen, when Jerusalem was sacked, it's like the old car got hit by a bomb. And then the scraps were taken to the scrapyard. For you now, post-70 A.D., to go back and try to live under that old system, it's like going to the scrapyard and trying to find all the pieces and put them back together and drive that thing. Do you have much hope of that working? You don't. Just drive the new car. Just, dri just drive the new car, okay? Just operate under this new covenant. Now, sometimes people have a, a problem with what I just said there, and they'll point to this scripture in Matthew 5. Let's look at it. Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. And these are kind of confusing scriptures. It says, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, I thought you just said that the law is abolished. Pastor, why does Jesus say this? He says, think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to, to fulfill. For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth shall pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these commandments and teach men to do so, he'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great. For verily I say to you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, letter A, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Let's just set aside the law for a moment. What does it mean if you fulfill a prophecy? It means that God said he was going to do something and then, and then it did, right? For example, uh, the Bible tells us that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Did he fulfill that prophecy? Now, here's the crux. Are we still anticipating that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem? Why? Already, it, it was fulfilled, right? It's already, it's, it's occurred. Can we go back and read that and be blessed by it? Sure we can. Can we learn that God is faithful to His Word? Sure we can. Do we throw out those scriptures? Of course not. What does fulfilled prophecy look like? God said something, and then He did it. 
And now, does that prophecy apply in the same way it applied before he fulfilled it? No. Notice this next part, letter B. Jesus said that all the law has to be fulfilled at once, not just parts. That's because James 2.10 says that the law is like a monolith, and if you offend at one point, you become guilty of the whole thing. Somebody's got to keep all the law perfectly at the same time. And when that happens, then the thing could be fulfilled. Well, was there anybody that ever lived a perfect sinless life and, and did all the law at one time? Well, there was one person, <laughs> and his name was Jesus. And all the types and shadows in the law find their fulfillment in Jesus. And Jesus at one time fulfilled everything in the law. So he says, he says, I'm not come to, to tear up that old contract. Tearing it up would bring cursing. I'm come to fulfill it or pay it off like you'd pay off a mortgage. Jesus, is, he's saying, Max, I didn't come to tear up that agreement that you have with U.S. Bank. I came and I paid the thing off. I've also got uh, uh, statements like one time we had, uh, uh, for a brief period of time, we had a loan on one of Molly's cars. I've still got the the note that, that said I had that debt. However, the debt's paid off. Does that note apply to me the same way it did before it was paid off? No. Can I go back? Could you read that and learn something about me? Sure you could. This is exactly what the law is. The law was fully fulfilled in Jesus. It was all paid off. Um, the law is a contract between God and Israel. Jesus, as God's representative fulfilled the contract in the same way you would pay off a mortgage. Number two, the law still exists as a historical record, um, as a historical account, excuse me, of the previous covenant, like, like I've got records of these debts. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, if you teach these things, these covenants, these commandments, then you'll be great, but if you don't, then you'll be the least? Well, he goes on to explain what commandments he's talking about, and he says, you know what? Guys, even though there's going to be this new covenant, uh, you heard that, that it's not good to commit adultery, but I tell you, don't even lust. You heard it's not good to kill or murder, but I, I told you, don't even be angry without a cause. What's he saying there? He's saying, even though we're under this new covenant where we're forgiven and God's not mad at us, is it, is it still a sin to lust? Of course it is. Is it still bad to commit adultery under the new covenant? Yeah. Is God mad at you? No. But can it destroy your marriage? Can it destroy your family? Is it super dangerous? Yeah. And if a, a minister stands up and says, hey, sin all you want, <laughs> because, because, you know, go for it. No big deal. That, that, that's bad. We ought, we ought to recognize that ought to not shock us. Now, I've never met a minister like that. Um, I'm sure they're out there because that's who the book of Jude was written to. But Jesus is saying, even though we're in this new covenant, there's still a place for... T I've had to tell people before, hey, you know, God loves you, but you're way too awesome to be engaging in that behavior. Why? Because it's, it's unhealthy. It's not because God's mad at you. It's not because wrath's about to come upon you or judgment, but you're a new creation. You become a new person, and, and new creations don't, don't go around lusting and hating people for no reason. Yeah. 
That's what Jesus is saying there. Does that make sense? So he's not saying, he's not saying well, you need to keep the law, or you're going to be judged. No, he's saying, look, there's still, there's still morals. Jesus, Paul said, I'm not without, without a law in the sense that I, uh, I'm, I'm outside of the Mosaic law, but I've still got this law of Jesus that governs me called love. And I love people. All right, this last point, I want to close here. If we could all stand up. The Bible teaches us that grace provides a necessary connection with God to overcome sin. What, what we've wrongly thought because of religion is that what you need to get out of sin is for God to judge you and punish you and, and distance himself from you. That's what, that's what religion teaches us is that if we just feel bad enough about our sin, if we just get judged enough and feel enough shame, that, that, that'll help us get free. But the Old Testament proves to us that the opposite is true. The, the children of Israel were under the law, and it didn't make them holier. They became awful. They got into all kinds of idolatry. They got into uh, prostitution, temple prostitution. They, got into, they sacrificed their kids to demons. The law doesn't help you get out of sin. Jesus does. Connection with your father does. They did this study about uh, people in deep addiction, like heroin addiction. And they found that it's primarily an addiction about loneliness. It's about disconnection from significant relationships. The, the primary thing that keeps you safe from addictive behaviors tends to be strong connection to another human being. And what we thought is that that we need to create distance between ourselves and people that are broken. And sometimes I understand we have to create boundaries and we don't want to be abused, but the truth of the matter is Jesus runs towards sinners. He runs towards the broken. And it's, it's our connection with Him that allows us to get free from sin. It's being close. It's when, it's when you're at your worst and you're... you're stuck in the mud and there's grime all around you and you cry out for mercy and, and you hear the voice of your father run towards you and reach down in the mud and get down in there with you and before you ever get out, before you make any change, he wraps his arms around you and he says, you're my son you're my daughter, I love you right now, right where you are you don't have to change I accept and love you right now and when you feel that, that's what helps you get out of the mud. Not people throwing stones at you. Not people telling you how dirty the mud is and how bad it is. Well, if my prayer team could come down here, this is a simple thing. It's a simple message. You live in a, in a better covenant based on better promises. You, you're a priest if you know Jesus. So we want to just give you the opportunity. If you need prayer, you can come down here. Somebody has a problem with their right eye, uh, pain or, or pressure in here. Somebody else has a low back problem. Uh, if you want to come down to some of my prayer ministries, I'll pray for you. Uh, affections are for me. Oh, how he loves us. Oh.